I'm Ricardo Fuller and you're listening to the Wizard of Driven podcast. Hello and welcome to the Wizards of Drivel podcast, a special one-off episode today as I speak to John Leonard, author of Tony Waddington, director of A Working Man's Ballet. John, thank you very much for joining us. Um, You've written a biography of Tony Waddington. Uh, What was it that made you want to write it? Well, thanks for inviting me on. Uh, It was actually after we discussed... A few months ago, remember, I wrote a book about sport and politics, and after that, I needed some light relief. And I was going through some topics, and I thought, well, the subject I probably know most about is probably, like for all Stoke fans, is is the club I support. And I noticed there wasn't really a great deal about Tony. There are there's a lot about other managers from the 60s and the 70s. There's Alan Hodgson's lovely uh, tribute to him, the Warrington Years. But there's no sort of actual narrative describing his story, telling his story. So I just felt I wanted to get it out there. And fortunately, Pitch Publishing, who put out my last book, uh, thought it was a decent idea and uh, agreed to publish. Yeah, and obviously Tony Waddington is a name that every Stoke fan knows, but especially if you're from uh, my generation who didn't get to experience the 70s or even even fans who were kind of maybe around in the 70s, they don't know too much about the man Tony Waddington. So uh, how did you kind of go about researching and uh, getting getting everything together for the book? Well, well, that's a good point because actually, I mean, I only really know him from the 70s uh, as a supporter. I did met, meet him occasionally, uh, but again, even in that context, the 60s I knew very little about. And so it was a question of going back to the archive, going back to the, the biographies, going through that and just doing good old-fashioned research and, and looking at the quotes in various newspapers. There's some absolutely superb articles written about him, he, he himself giving out his philosophy. And I have to also acknowledge Peter Hewitt and, and the great series of interviews he did, and I looked at that, and there's club DVDs, and he did give a lot of interviews looking back on his life. So the core material was there. It was just a question of supplementing that with contemporary accounts going back to the 1950s, going through the 60s, the time of the uh, promotion campaign, the time he got Matthews in. There's a lot written about that. Obviously, Matthews himself, I think, and I used two of his autobiographies. He wrote about five, I think, during the course of his career. So it's a question of, of, of just going through the, the courts and uh, talking to one or two people as well, Peter Coates uh, being one who obviously knew him throughout, knew him well. Uh, and, and collating that and putting it, it all together in a uh, chronological narrative, and hopefully I've been able to do that. And during that kind of researching process, uh, w- did you come across a lot that surprised you? Because, because like I said, he, he is something of an unknown quantity. So w- what did you kind of learn that particularly piqued your interest? I think there were... It was. It's actually a bit too edged because there was stuff that I didn't really know about. There's other stuff that I'd forgotten about, mm. <laughs> and and also I looking from the perspective of the, the you know the second decade of the 21st century, you're looking at a diff, very different sport back in the 60s and 70s, and going back to the 60s, what surprised me was the. Uh, manner in which he took over, the state of the club as it was at the time. It was an absolute mess. 
Uh, fans complain now, but it's nothing compared with what the club was like in 1960 when he took over as, as manager. And certainly nothing like it was in 1952 when he arrived as a, as a coach from Crew Alexandra. That's, that, that surprised me. And then also aspects of the game, not least uh, his first season in charge. He signed Jimmy O'Neill. That was the great thing about it. He had this obsession with goalkeepers. Jimmy O'Neill played for Everton. He played for the Republic of Ireland. And Jimmy O'Neill, within the first uh, few weeks of that season, became unwittingly, I have to say, embroiled in a uh, bribery scandal. And that really did shock me and stun me to see how that was handled, badly handled by the authorities. And, of course... uh, a few years later, we had the Peter Swan incident, and we had the in fact he was jailed for him and others for uh, taking bribes. It was a time of uh, the minimum wage was uh, still in force. George Eastham, of course, later was to be pivotal in getting uh, that overturned. And so it was just that's one aspect. And then even going on to the seventies, I remember well the marathon and league cup semi-finals with West Ham. What I'd forgotten was uh, Ferguson going, Bobby Ferguson, the uh, uh, West Ham goalkeeper going off injured. I didn't realize that the Manchester United doctor, the game was played at Old Trafford, that uh, second replay. And he said, he can't go back on the pitch. And, uh, the Ron Greenwood, the West Ham manager, just plain ignored him. Now, there's lessons today, actually, about that and players' treatment and uh, head concussion protocols, but back back then it was totally ignored. And so there's those little small snippets that uh, did take me by surprise, did intrigue me. The other thing, I think the major thing, is is departure, which I remember well as a teenager. I you know, remember reading about it, but... The narrative was from the from the club and everything that uh, he'd resigned. The players questioned that, and it's clear actually uh, going back through the Sentinel uh, accounts from Peter Hewitt that actually he was told to go, and that and it was quite a sad uh, departure really. I mean, it was I've titled uh, one of the chapters "Taxi for Wado," and that's because exactly that's literally what happened. They they took away his company car and uh, sent him in a taxi home to Crew, and it was quite <laughs> shocking really. Mm. It, it's it's remarkable. First of all, looking at the the dates he he managed Stoke, I think seventeen year uh, management career, and like you said, and it and it is and he is considered to be the best manager in the club's history, and yet you do have that or that horrible way it ended for him, and that kind of leads me on to a question from uh, Lee Hawthorne from Duck Magazine, who says. Even the great man took some stick from the Booth and Boo Boys at times. Does this show that impatient and churlish support is no recent thing? Well, I think I was one of the Booth and Boo Boys. I mentioned it in the book. Uh, Although it has to be said, the board was getting as much stick as Wado at the time. I mean, yes, it's always been the case that fans have been unhappy, if, if not with the club, but with the manager. You know, Brian Clough, for example, we had the spats with the players and the Leeds fans uh, in the early 70s. Derby County got rid of Cluffy uh, quite controversially. So there's nothing new. I think now, though, there's much more longevity uh, you know, among, among managers. There's much more loyalty than there was then. But 
we're comparing different eras. It's very different, difficult to compare football now in the Premier League era, especially in the you know second now almost the third decade of the Premier League era with uh, football in the 60s and 70s. Football even in the 70s was changing from what it was in the 60s, as I was describing. Uh, players were beginning to, uh, to earn decent money, if not the riches they earn now, and so, and, and uh, managers too. So it, it, it is difficult to, com- to compare across. But yes, the basic point of it being nothing new, well, that, does, that, that does stand. And uh, going back to his early years as Stoke manager, obviously uh, the kind of, I don't know if you'd describe it as a turning point or well, certainly the, the major thing he did was uh, bring back Stanley Matthews to the club. Even uh, even then, Matthews was progressing in years. I mean, uh, first of all, what was the what was the driving force behind that? And what do you think the long-term significance of of it was oh the long term significance was significance was immense he he was uh, you know the a totem he was he he Warrington wanted a great player. He even looked at Tom Finney. But actually, to bring Matthews back, to bring the prodigal son home to the Potteries, that meant a heck of a lot because not only. Did he have a great player? Did he have the guy who's recognised at the time as probably the greatest English player of all time, if not one of the, the world's greatest ever players of all time? Now, people like Pushkas and Di Stefano would dispute that, etc. But also, there was a great public relations side to this. It, he brought Matthews back. The crowd for the previous uh, Stoke home game was around about 8,000. 30-odd thousand turned up for the game against Huddersfield when he made his uh, second home, second debut So, as a Stoke City player. So, 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 so that was the thing. I think he, he, Matthews was a talisman. He, was, that's, he attracted interest in the club, not just locally in North Staffordshire, but nationally. The, the signing of Matthews was done live on uh, BBC, equivalent of a show called Sports Night, in, in, in a midweek sports ma- magazine show that, that they ran at the time. And, and 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 the interest was immense. Plus, it also helped him to attract other wildly experienced players. You know, this week sadly we've lost Jimmy McElroy. McElroy came along partly because Matthews was there. He wanted to play alongside him at Stoke City Football Club. And once Burnley had, for reasons best known to themselves, had turned their backs on McElroy, and the offer came from Wado instead of going to. For other first division clubs, as, and they were interested in signing McElroy. Instead, he 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 went to join the Wellington's project at Stoke City with uh, Stanley Matthews, uh, obviously leading it. He wasn't the captain at the time. A guy called Eddie Stewart, who came from Wolves, was the captain, but he was certainly you know he was a pie piper, as it were, for, for the fans and 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 for, and for the players too. And the the subtitle of the book is uh, "Director of a Working Man's Ballet," which. Uh, was a phrase Waddington used um what was what what does that tell you that phrase about kind of his outlook on football I think there's a slight contradiction there because yes he wanted to show free-flowing fine football which the fans could enjoy and savor and you know it was that that that, that was one aspect to it but also he, he was a, an arch pragmatist, make no, no mistake. I mentioned Jimmy O'Neill. Jimmy O'Neill uh, joked that, you know, when Water first took over, he played 1 9 1. It was O'Neill in goal and a row of nine defenders and uh, one bloke up front, Johnny King. It, in, and we saw that even in the 70s team, which 
had uh, great midfield players, great midfield artists such as uh, Alan Hudson. Nobody epitomises the working man's ballet more than Alan, also Matthews, obviously, and McElroy. But in, behind behind them, there was this uh, immense steel. There was the, the you know, Pedrick, Marsh, Bloor and Dennis Smith. There were these you know, uncompromising defenders who stopped other players from playing and then gave the ball to our players who could play. And that was the idea. So it was, it was a term he used on a tour to America to just try and get them to uh, interested in, in association football, in soccer. But uh, it, it didn't seem to work in the States, but it stuck over here. So that's, that's fine. That was fine by him. Mm. And obviously, shortly after signing Matthews, uh, Stoke go up to the first division in '63. We get to a, a League Cup final in '64, and then it's uh, not until 1972 that eventually we we win a competition. And it's really hard to imagine now a club, a kind of mid-table, maybe up, you know, occasionally battling towards the top end of the table, really going that far with this with the same manager that that longevity i mean what was what was the secret to that longevity was it partly the different uh footballing culture where managers weren't churned over with the same regularity they are now or or was it something within waddington's uh personality or way of playing that that ensured that it was part down to the footballing culture, but more than anything, it was his relationship with the chairman, Albert Henschel. In Tony Pulis, as you know, always went on about how it was important to have a good relationship with his chairman, in his case, Peter Coates. And that was certainly the case with uh, Tony Warrington. Now, arguably, it fell apart in the late 70s, though I don't think it actually, his relationship with uh, Henschel fell apart, not one bit. I think it was with the other directors. That helped. And also, I Henschel like Warrington saw it as a long-term project they they went steady as you go they got dismantled the 63 promotion team they brought in new players notably of course Gordon Banks Jimmy Greenoff came along uh, young Terry Conroy arrived at the club and so it was slowly built and actually in 1970 there were signs that uh, Stoke would actually do something that they could get to a Wembley final that they could move up the league table and and there, it was possible to win a major trophy. I, I think the pivotal game for me, I remember being at it, was uh, September 1970 when they played Arsenal. Now, Arsenal went on to win the double and, of course, controversially uh, knocked Stoke out uh, in the semi-final of the FA Cup. Mm. But that 5-0 thrashing of uh, Arsenal, which was on match of the day, and in those days there were only four or five top-flight games that were ever televised uh it's not like now when it's wall to wall and so i think the nation woke up the football world woke up hang on, hang on there's something going on at stoke city there's something afoot here tony warrington has a decent team of footballers and so therefore yes it was a long-term project and even before he left even before i mean john sadler was one of the top four football writers of the day he worked for the sun newspaper and he wrote around Christmas of 76, uh, only three months before Warrington left, that it was inconceivable that while other clubs were being fickle and getting rid of managers, it was inconceivable, inconceivable uh, Stoke City would do the same. Sadly, they did. And sadly, Stoke, uh, as we know, were relegated that season. So there was not, 
a lot more patience. It was a lot different. The culture was different. And he did have this wonderful relationship with Albert Henschel. They were best mates. I mean, it wasn't just a, a, a chairman and manager's relationship. They were best friends, there's no doubt about it. And when you look at his career, his Stoke career in, in context, uh, promotion to the top flight, uh, first Cup League Cup final in Stoke's history, first trophy in Stoke's history, first uh, adventures into Europe in Stoke's history. Um, obviously, it's groundbreaking in terms of Stoke City, but is there an argument to say his teams could have achieved more? Or, or should they? Uh, yes, I mean, it might be harsh. I think uh, the 74-75 team did come close to winning the league, but it was wrapped by bad luck. Uh, it was a relatively small squad, as all squads were in those days, but they had a horrific amount of injuries. I think, think four or five broken legs. I do document it properly in the book. I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, and, 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 they, and, they suffered, and they suffered from it. And so... It, 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 it is difficult. And also then with the infamous uh, Butler, uh, Butler Street roof uh, coming off in, in, a, in, a, in a gale and a storm, he was then forced to, set, to sell his best players. He could have regrouped, could have used that 74-75 team as, as, as the basis for having another tilt to the title. Sadly, it was taken away from him because of the financial constraints on the club. And was that that kind of... That that freak event, that that kind of force of nature thing, where something happens beyond his control, the the Butler Street stand blows off the roof. Does does that did that not buy him a, a lot of? Did that buy him enough leeway with with the fans? Because um, you, you mentioned how the Wado out chance grew and grew and grew, but was was that kind of taken into account? Uh, I'm afraid I don't think it was maybe with some fans but I think there was a growing frustration with the club in general rather than just as I said earlier rather than just Tony Warrington specifically and I think the sale of Jimmy Greenoff was a hammer blow to him it was a hammer blow to the club and to the fans who adored Jimmy it was a hammer blow to them and the club as PR, not that they had a PR team at the moment, but the board didn't handle it very well. Uh, they seemed to drop water in it a bit, blaming him for wanting to let him go. Uh, I mean, as it is, he did actually arrange the move to Manchester United. He picked up the phone to his contacts there, as, as I point out, he used to play for them. He had a very good relationship with Matt Busby, who still had a lot of influence at, at uh, Manchester United at the time, even though he wasn't, no, even though he was no longer the manager. And so he moved uh, Greenoff on to Man United instead of Everton, uh, especially as Brian Greenoff, uh, Jimmy's late brother, uh, played at the club, and, and, and so. It's a difficult call, that, because I do think that inevitably frustration spills over on the terraces. But I think, in hindsight, there's possibly more sympathy with Wado than uh, maybe at the time when you know, we were staring relegation in the in the face as far as the fans were concerned. I don't think the players quite realised it at the time, but certainly those of us who are on the terraces, a large group of us felt it was going to happen, and sadly, inevitably, inevitably it did happen. And also at the time, how was he regarded in in the context of the other managers at the time? What did other managers say about him and um, uh, where was he ranked in terms of the, the managers of the era kind of thing? The other managers rated him, uh, maybe one or two exceptions, but they rated 
uh, Warrington as one of their peers. That he was their equal as far as they were concerned. Uh, and I do quote, for example, uh, you know, Stoke City and Warrington go together like gin and tonic. That's a quote from Brian Clough. He, 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 he offered that uh, quote after Warrington and left because so there was quite a lot of shock at uh, Warrington's departure amongst those in the game generally. And you know, people like Bobby Robson uh, and Ron Greenwood, who he had a, an awkward relationship with, with the West Ham manager at the time. They were having their little League Cup battles in the early 70s, also rated uh, Warrington. His relationship, sadly, with Don Revy uh, deteriorated, but that was nothing new. I think that was the same for Clough, that was the same for others, and it all it, it, it deteriorated, really, when uh, Revy went to England. And uh, as we all know, that, that particular episode ended in tears for English football and for Don Revy. It's interesting speaking to you, um, I know we can't really make that many comparisons with uh, modern football, but it, I'm starting to get a slight, and Stoke fans may really not like me for saying this, I'm starting to get a slight Arsene Wenger kind of feel from this, where it's he, the greatest manager in the club's history, but left under somewhat of a cloud, but still was so highly regarded by his peers at the time. And um, it... If you were to draw any parallels with either modern managers or, or other managers, who would you see as kind of being similar either in philosophy or uh, outlook or career? I think it's almost impossible to make a comparison. I mean, I actually, funnily enough, asked the same question to Peter Coates and I take on board his answer because Peter uh, responded by saying, well, it's a different era, different demands. It's very difficult to compare. I think possibly he's trying to be polite about Pulis and Mark Hughes was still the Stoke manager at the time. I, I get that. But I, I as, as a modern manager, well, I don't... I wouldn't compare him with Wenger, for example. I wouldn't compare him with uh, Mourinho. He was he he was a man of his era. That's that's uh, you know, he he was. You can compare him. He, he can't even not even with other managers. I mean, there were similarities with with uh, Clough, but he, but he didn't have his Clough's bombastic nature. His uh, his his thirst for PR for himself. Wado had a thirst for PR for the football club, which is two different things, and so it, it, it is very difficult to compare him with any Stoke manager who, who followed. Uh, I think the, the managers who came closest were Lou Macari and Tony Pulis. Other than that, and Tony and Lou were both very. As you, I'm sure you'd agree, both very different types of uh, managers. And Lou Macari, by the way, played, you know, he'd have played against, uh, uh, for Man United against the Wado team. So I'm sure he'd, he, he rated him highly at the time as well. Mm. And uh, a while ago for episode 72 of this podcast, I was very fortunate to meet uh, Dennis Smith, Gordon Banks and Terry Conroy and all of them spoke about how they they just wanted to to play for for him and what a great motivator he was and uh, kind uh, that that kind of spurred them on in a lot of respects sort of on his personality then what what do you think it was about him as a person because you, you mentioned he was he's completely different personality to Clough in in some respects but. Uh, what do you think it was that kind of yeah, motivated his players? I think it was his loyalty to his players. I think it was his conviviality. It was, you know, they'd go in and complain. Terry Conroy talks. I'm sure he spoke to you about this. You'd go into the office and you couldn't have an argument with the man. 
Because mm. you go and complain about why I've been dropped, and you go out feeling, and you just sit sit him down, talk about his family, etc. I won't even talk about football, and it, and it, it, it did have a wonderful way with players. I mean. A lot of them, I get the impression, didn't think he was the world's greatest tactician, but that didn't matter because all he did was send them out and gave them the freedom to play their football, and that's what they liked, and that's what that's what they appreciated, and uh, and with it came a relative success, the only major success the, cl- the clubs had, and as you, as you mentioned earlier, the, the two trips to Europe, and, and the second time around, the games against Ajax. I mean. Alan Hudson, I spoke to him many years ago about that game, particularly game. Uh, I haven't recently spoken to him about it, but he said, I think he still holds the view. And he said it was the best game he'd ever played in, and it was the best game that Stoke had ever played in, the nil-nil draw in, in Amsterdam. Sadly, it still meant they went out and away goals. It was one of those hard-luck stories, as it were. Uh, and it was in the same season as they went on to nearly win the league, but fell short with all those injuries and that. So, yeah, he... He was able to. He was a great motivator, as you say, and he, and I think that was because he built up uh, a warm, almost fatherly relationship with his players, almost a paternal relationship. Certainly, that was the case with Hudson, and I think it it was the case with a lot of those seventies players. It may not have been quite the same in the sixties. In fact, I'm certainly. I think it certainly wasn't. Not with Matthews and McElroy and Dennis Violet and Dennis Wilshaw, all, all those experienced old heads, but. Because he was a young manager, I mean, he was he was younger than Matthews. He was about the same age as Dennis Wilshaw. Uh, although Dennis, uh, as a Pottery's lad, he, he won the league with Wolverhampton Wanderers in the FA Cup and played for England and all that. But he was from Stoke. He was a Stoke fan, and when he and he actually even taught in the area and came came onto came on board with Water to help out with coaching and all the rest of it to to kickstart that uh, Water project before. Uh, uh, Matthews came along, and indeed Wilshaw played a part in in the, in the signing of Matthews because he he'd seen him out in Canada and reassured Wellington that he'd have no problem signing him. He'd he'd do a job for him. That's fantastic, uh, John. Thank you very much for speaking to us. I'm going to give you a chance now to, uh, if people haven't come across the book already or bought it already, where can people uh, get it? Well, well, thanks very much, David. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's from Pitch Publishing. It's out in hardback. Uh, it's also out as an e-book. Uh, you can get it on Kindle and iBooks. It's available in the Stoke Club shop if you want to go there. I'm sure you, I'm sure you'd pop in. <laughs> and uh, It's available there both in Hanley and at the ground. And uh, Amazon also are stocking it in, in their stores uh, locally in Staffordshire. Not Amazon, Waterstones. And... Amazon. If you want to go online, they're selling it as well as uh, Waterstone. So all, all the usual, all the usual places, all the usual uh, bookstores, and as I say, uh, at the Stoke Club shop. Brilliant, John. Thank you very much for speaking to us. Thanks, David. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks.